Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we humbly ask as we reopen your word again that through this means of preaching and teaching, Lord, let us hear your word effectually. Let us hear it by the power of the Holy Spirit, the convincing power that will arrest our attention, captivate our affections, and draw us more unto you, Lord, renewing our minds by the truth of your word, convicting, comforting, challenging, encouraging us in our way with you. We pray too, Lord, that for those in our midst, even here today, that have yet to close with Christ in true saving conversion, we pray that as the glory of the Lord Jesus is displayed, in this passage of your holy word. May it be so displayed today unto the true, genuine conversion of sinners here who will, by your sovereign and saving grace, be drawn to Christ and close with him by faith. These things we earnestly ask, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, and always and only for his sake. Amen. I do invite you this morning to take God's Word, and I'm so glad to say, to John chapter 8. Yes, John chapter 8. We finally come back to our ongoing study in John. We're going to begin reading this morning at verse 21 and reading all the way to verse 30. John chapter 8 beginning at verse 21 to verse 30. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed 
in him. And so reads the infallible, inerrant word of the living, eternal God. On October the 12th, 1975, in Palatine, Illinois, 125 people gathered at the Willow Creek Theater for the start of a new church under the leadership of a Michigan-born native named Bill Hybels. Following a strategic survey in the community inquiring why people didn't come to church, Hybels took the answers he'd been given as the paradigm for building a new kind of church. He described this new church model as seeker-sensitive, where the Sunday services were designed to meet the felt needs of unbelievers. Heibel's methodology worked as far as numerical success is concerned. Within two years, the church grew to 2,000 members, and by 1981, they moved to South Barrington, Illinois, where they became Willow Creek Community Church. And for the next two decades, Willow Creek Community Church became the fastest-growing church in America with Bill Hybels' seeker-sensitive approach spawning a nationwide movement called the Church Growth Movement. Adopting the marketing ideas of Peter Drucker and applying them to the church, Hybels and his followers deliberately dressed down the gospel message and mission of the church to meet the felt needs of the American consumer in a religious context. The church, therefore, that was built out of this model advocated without shame that if the world is to be one to Christ, then the church must become like the world. So there is no difference, no striking contrast between Christ and the unbeliever per se, since Christ is being offered to the unbeliever in the most palatable, inoffensive, and domestic kind of way. For Bill Hybels then, in his seeker-sensitive churches that followed, they want Jesus to be a sellable product the consumer will enjoy. But when we turn to the Word of God, is this the Jesus we find in the pages of Holy Scriptures? A seeker-sensitive Savior whose great mission is to meet the felt needs of the unbeliever? Well, the answer to this question should be painfully obvious. There was nothing, absolutely nothing, in the person or work of Jesus Christ that made him pliable, manageable, and acceptable to the world by the world's standards. His mission in the world was to save sinners, not to appease sinners. Therefore, Jesus doesn't blend in with the world, but he stands apart from it as the light counters the darkness. And with this fact of our Lord in mind, we turn this morning to John chapter 8, 21 through 30, where we will see just how stark the contrast really is between Jesus and the world. In this context, however, 
It is Jesus standing in opposition to the unbelief of the Jewish religious leaders. And so from this passage, I want us to consider first a contrast in destiny, and then second, a contrast in identity. To begin with then, let's look at a contrast in destiny. Looking with me at verses 21 and 22. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? What Jesus says here in verse 21 is almost a verbatim repeat of what he said to the Jewish leaders back in John chapter 7, verses 33 and 34. In that passage, it is recorded that Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. What Jesus is speaking to by these words is his approaching departure to be with the Father, which is a departure that will come by his death. This explains why the Jews queried at him mockingly, Will he kill himself? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. The form of this question can be better rendered as, Surely he will not kill himself. It's not that they believed Jesus would, in fact, kill himself, but they clearly caught enough of what he said to know he is referencing his death. However, what the Jews clearly missed by what Jesus is declaring is that he is setting his death in stark contrast to theirs. Our Lord says both bluntly and emphatically, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Unlike the destiny set before Jesus following his death, these Jewish religious leaders will die in their sin, which of course will eternally bar them from going to be where Jesus was heading in his return to the Father. To die in your sin is to die with your sin unrepented and unatoned for, which is the ultimate ruin and disaster any human soul could ever face. Indeed, there is no greater nightmare than this for any sinner. It is to leave this world remaining under the curse of your sin, which you will pay for in never-ending torment and hellfire. But the fact that the term sin is used here in the singular and not the plural is referencing in this immediate context the sin of unbelief. That is the sin of rejecting Jesus and the revelation he is and brings as the Messiah, the Christ of the living God. There is no greater sin than this sin, which these Jewish religious leaders were guilty of in the extreme. This is why Jesus says to them, And you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. By asserting that the Jews would seek him, Jesus 
was not referring to himself personally. The pronoun me is not emphatic. It is not emphatic. Rather, what our Lord meant by these words, you will seek me, is that they would go on looking for the Messiah who they will never find since they have rejected the only Messiah there is, the one standing directly in front of them, God's eternal Son made flesh, Jesus the Christ. For this reason, it should not be surprising that Jesus goes on to declare to them, where I am going, you cannot come. We must ask rhetorically, how could it be otherwise? If you reject the Son, listen, if you reject the Son, you in turn reject the Father. If you reject the Son, you in turn reject the Father. Remember what Jesus said back in John chapter 5 and verse 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. A parallel passage to this is 1 John 2.23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So then... Here in John 8, 21, Jesus is underlining with force to these Jewish leaders that their rejection of him will be their eternal ruin. Where I am going, back to the Father in the everlasting abode of glory, you, and that you is emphatic, you in particular, cannot come. The verb translated cannot is the Greek term dunamai, which means to be able, to have the power. Used here in the present indicative construction, Jesus holds nothing back by declaring to these Jewish religious leaders, in essence, you neither have the ability now, nor will you ever have the ability in the future to be where I am going to the Father. Unbelief shuts the unbeliever out of heaven. A.W. Pink, in his commentary on John, said of this demise, emphasizing the verb cannot, by broadening the application in this way, he wrote, cannot because the holiness of God makes it impossible. That which is corrupt and vile cannot dwell with him. There can be no communion between light and darkness. Cannot because the righteousness of God makes it impossible. Sin must be punished. The penalty of the broken law must be enforced. And for the reprobate, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Cannot because they have no character suited to the place whither Christ has gone. In the very nature of the case, every man must go to his own place, the place for which he is fitted. So herein we see a contrast in destiny. Jesus returns to the Father following his death, whereas the Jewish religious leaders will die in their sin, separated from God for eternity in never-ending punishment for their sins. But as we move on, 
in our study of John 8, 21 through 30, we see another contrast here that Jesus makes. It is a contrast in identity. A contrast in identity. Reading verses 23 to 29. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. In this further exchange between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, our Lord makes an even sharper contrast between them by way of their opposing identities. In the first place, we notice an identification of origin. An identification of origin. In verses 23 and 24, Jesus declares, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Concerning the Jewish leaders, what Jesus says of them is is in fact true of all sinners by nature. Our Lord says, you are from below. You are of this world. It's not that they were merely members of the human race by nature. That is not the point our Lord is making by these terms. Rather, in contrast, in stark contrast to the realm where Jesus descends, these Jews, like all sinners, had no union, no harmony, no fellowship whatsoever with God's eternal Son. Their minds and affections and aims in life were inseparably connected to a world of fallen, rebellious sinners. For Jesus to declare then, you are of this world, is to indict the character of these Jewish leaders as spiritually dead and graceless men. Despite all their claims to know the true God, Jesus is stating the polar opposite of who they really are. The course of their lives is fixed in opposition to all the Son of God represents because, as Jesus says, they are of this world, which the Apostle John tells us in his first epistle, 1 John 5, 19, the world lies in the power of the evil one. So, in contrast to the origin of these sinful men, Jesus says... I am from above. I am not of this world. By these words, Jesus is claiming 
that his essential nature and being is nothing like theirs. He may look in physical appearance to be like them because in his incarnation, God's son became a true man. But his birth was nothing like theirs, seen as how Jesus was not born in sin, but was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. This would mean, therefore, that his human life was never tainted, corrupted, or in bondage to sin whatsoever, though it was as truly human as the rest of us. No, the difference in this regard is that his human nature is perfect and thereby without sin. But it's not just his human nature that is unlike the world in sin. There is more to these words Jesus is implying. He is speaking of his eternal nature as God's eternal son who is one with the Father from all eternity. And to put an explanation point on this truth concerning the identity of Jesus, our Lord says of himself with unvarnished candor in verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I think it's safe to say Jesus is not being very seeker sensitive here. In the single statement, we have one of the clearest claims to deity Jesus Christ ever, ever made. When he says, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now listen to me. The pronoun he is not even in the original Greek. In the Greek text, it is simply ego imi, I am. And we know that this is a direct reference to the I am of Exodus 3.14. When Moses inquired of God to reveal his name, that he may be able to tell the children of Israel who in fact has sent him to them, the Lord said, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so here in John 8... Here stands in the face of these Jewish leaders what appears to them as a mere mortal man. A man who they believe descends from the Galilean town of Nazareth. Nothing special about this man. And yet this man says to these Jewish leaders, unless you believe that I am, you will die. In your sins. In other words, unless you believe that I am the eternal God, the self existent one, you will be condemned forever in your sins. The contrast between Jesus and the Jews could not be greater than this, greater than what we see in this claim of our Lord. The reason Jesus is not from below and not from this world is because in the essence of who he is, he is eternal deity. He is one with the Father and the Spirit in undivided essence. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is ego in me. He is I am. But let's not miss the point Jesus is driving at here, not just to the Jews, but to all sinners in every age. Listen very closely. The only way, the only way to flee from dying in your sins is to fly to Jesus Christ by faith, trusting in the fact of who He is as God's eternal Son. You see, a very critical element of saving faith is trusting in who Jesus is as the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is not a mere man, a mere human like us. No, He is more than human. He is eternal deity. He is the God-man. And if we deny this, like the Jews, then we too will die in our sins. It's that plain. It's that pointed. And we had better not miss that. Moving further, though, in our text, let's notice in the second place that there is not only a contrast relating to an identification of origin, but there is also a contrast relating to an identification of mission. An identification of mission. To begin with, in verse 25, we see the reaction of the Jews to what Jesus just claimed. So they said to him, Who are you? The pronoun you is scornfully emphatic. Placed at the beginning of the question in the original Greek text, it reads, You? Who are you to say such things? This is the force and the, the outrage, the exasperation of this, of this question. To which Jesus begins his response by saying, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. What Jesus means by this is that the revelation of his witness as God's eternal son has been consistent from the very beginning of his ministry. Why should they act as if they've never heard him make such claims before? But going on in verse 26, Jesus continues, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Once again, Jesus makes it very clear that everything he declares to the world is not by his own authority. He is not acting as a rogue. Rather, he has been sent. He has been sent by the one true God who tells his son what to say and judge about the world. In other words, Jesus is on mission by God. So then the offense, the offense which the Jews are taking with Jesus is in actuality an offense they're having with God himself. But John tells us in verse 27, however, that the Jews did not understand that Jesus had been speaking to them about the Father. They were not making the connection because of their own unbelief. In spite of this, though, Jesus is not shaken. 
The full disclosure of who he is was coming. And there would be a great multitude of Jews, even those assembled in this present crowd, who would not only understand who Jesus is, but they would in fact trust him alone as their true Messiah, Savior, and Redeemer. So Jesus declares in verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. By the term lifted up, Jesus is referring directly to His approaching death and the manner of it by way of crucifixion. But following His crucifixion, Jesus asserts, Then you will know that I am He. What this means is that Jesus' death would be accompanied and followed by such manifestations of his divine glory that he would be fully vindicated and many would be convinced that he was indeed and is indeed the true Messiah, the Christ, the living God, and that everything he said and did had been commissioned by the Father. So Jesus says in the latter half of verse 28, And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And in case you're wondering, when exactly was this word of Christ verified? Well, you just read further in your Bibles from here. It was on the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2. When thousands of Jews, the very ones who demanded Jesus to be crucified were convicted by the truth of the gospel as they were brought to believe on Jesus as both Lord and Christ. But here in this moment of time, recorded in John chapter 8, six months preceding the crucifixion, that's where we are in the timeline, Jesus faces down and confronts the unbelief of the Jewish religious leaders. And speaking boldly to his deity once more, he says in verse 29, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The mission that Jesus has taken is a mission in perfect union with the Father. A mission in which Jesus is never alone because the Father is with him and has thereby not left him. But adding to this assurance, Jesus makes the most amazing claim. The most amazing claim. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. How many times does he do the things pleasing to the Father? Always. Always. The overt, tangible evidence that the Father is truly with Jesus as his only begotten Son is in the fact that everything Jesus does pleases God. Everything. In other words, the Son of God incarnate is sinless by nature. Sinless by nature. There is no thought, there is no motive, no affection, no word, no deed Jesus ever had or did 
that displeased the Father because Jesus Christ is without sin. Could the Jewish religious leaders make such a claim like that? Could they prove such an extraordinary thing as to be without sin? In their delusion, they perhaps thought they were, but it could never be proven. No, the answer is obviously no. Their words, their deeds, and listen, their mission were not commissioned by God, but by none other than the devil. The devil. As Jesus will bluntly accuse them later here in John 8 and verse 44, look at it. Jesus says to the Jewish religious leaders, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Talk about blunt. Talk about in your face, confrontational, harsh, even. That's the real Jesus. Not seeker-sensitive Bill Hybels' Jesus. This is the real Christ. So, very clearly, there was a stark contrast between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. A contrast of destiny, a contrast of... Of identity. And yet, in the face of such a contrast, John the Apostle tells us in verse 30 the most amazing thing that as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. Wow. What these last words in the narrative point to is a lesson we've seen and we've considered before in our study of John. Never underestimate the grace of God reaching sinners in the darkest places during the darkest times. We see that lesson even here. Despite the overwhelming opposition Jesus encountered by the Jewish religious leaders, despite their shameless and mocking unbelief and all his claims, yet, yet we're told as Jesus was saying these things, as he was making these claims, many believed in him. So, what then is this saying to us? It's saying that even if the majority says no to Jesus and does so with militant hostility, God will have a people He draws to his son by an omnipotent grace that the hardest hearts cannot overcome. But how should this truth encourage us as the church, as the church of Jesus Christ in these present times? It is in this. Listen closely. I'll say this twice. In spite of how foolish sinners think the gospel of Jesus Christ is, 
God has ordained what the world calls foolish to be the divine instrument in saving such foolish sinners. Listen to that again. In spite of how foolish sinners think the gospel of Jesus Christ is, God has ordained what the world calls foolish to be the divine instrument in saving such foolish sinners. This means, therefore, that the church doesn't need tricks, gadgets, gimmicks, and marketing ploys to win the world to Jesus. We don't need to make the gospel seeker-sensitive in order for sinners to feel their need of Jesus Christ. To give in to such overt compromise of the truth is to deny the very truth the church professes to believe. The gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. You hear me? It is enough for sinners to hear and be saved. It is the only message God has commissioned us with as the church to take to the world. It's all we got. And it's enough. It is enough. We must therefore trust God and trust in the only saving message He has ordained to save sinners no matter how hostile and unbelieving the world is to Christ. When Paul the Apostle wrote his letter to the church at Rome, he expressed in the very beginning of this epistle how eager he was to preach the gospel to every kind of person he met in the world. But why was Paul so eager? Why the eagerness? He answers in Romans chapter 1 in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now here's my question to us. Do we believe this? Is Romans 1.16 our motto? Is it? Is this the hill whereon we take our stand in the face of a hostile world? If we're faithful to Christ, then this is the flag we fly under as His church without shame, without apology, with no compromise. The gospel is enough. That is enough. But you see, that truth is what makes the church growth movement under the influence and pioneering efforts of Bill Hybels so absolutely scandalous. And I would even go so far to say, in many instances, blasphemous. Because seeker-sensitive churches, so-called, do not believe 
in the sufficiency of the gospel. They don't. That's why they have their gimmicks and their gadgets and their tricks. That's why they dress their churches up to look like, sound like, smell like, taste like the world. The world. That is why they shelve the Word of God. They shelve it. All to appease, to appease the flesh of man. And we know, because we don't have to look very far, not even right here in the heart of Dixie, to see that the methodology works, doesn't it? Oh, it works to gather a crowd. And, of course, we have one such so-called church, so-called, that gathers a crowd of over 50,000. Gimmicks, marketing ploys. But the gospel to such organizations like that is not sufficient. And of course, the gospel is just too offensive. They want to present to the world a seeker-sensitive Jesus, a Jesus who will meet the sinner's felt needs, who will be user-friendly. That's not the true Christ. That's not the real Jesus. That is a false Christ. And woe be to those men like Hybels. I can name another guy whose name starts with H, but I'll... But woe be unto those men because, you see, they don't have the long view. They don't have the long view. They're forgetting the fact they're going to stand before Jesus Christ at his judgment bar and they'll answer for what they have built on the foundation. And I dare say it will all be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. Beloved, may, may we... <laughs> May we here at this church, Providence, Reformed Baptist Church, may we never, ever give in and dare make such compromises like that, even in the slightest, even in the most subtle ways. May we say with conviction, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Amen. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we thank you for your Holy Son, your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer and King. And Father, we do pray earnestly 
that like your faithful servants of old, like Paul the Apostle, may it always be our conviction and a conviction that grows and a conviction that controls and a conviction that consumes us as the church of Jesus Christ that we will never be ashamed of his gospel and that we will indeed preach it and communicate it as the only sufficient answer and the only sufficient means to reach sinners in a truly saving way because Father this is what you have ordained and this is what you have therefore commissioned us by your Son our Lord Jesus the head of the church to say to the world And we thank you, blessed Father, for what we have seen in this from John chapter 8 this morning. We thank you, O God, for leaving us with the true Christ from your infallible word this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.